last Lord's Day, I sought to give to you an introduction to the Book of Romans. And basically, we highlighted what the Book of Romans was not. That the Book of Romans is not a systematic theology, wasn't designed to be a manual for evangelism. It's a letter written to a local church. And it has all of the earmarks of a letter, and it has as its background. Uh, the concerns that Paul had for this church, the concern he had in terms of his relationship to them and also their relationship to one another. And we try to give something of a sense of what might have been happening at Rome just by the fact that Paul, in this letter alone, seems to mention so often the distinction between Jews and Greeks, seems to uh, level everybody in equal footing uh, there's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All are justified by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. All uh, are, are leveled in sin. All are um, come to God through on the same basis. There's no supremacy or superiority or second-class citizenship in, in God's kingdom. And hence, uh, all these matters where there is tension and conflict between Jews and Gentiles that you pick up a little bit of it in chapters 9 to 11 where Paul speaks of his love for the Jewish people, maybe having something of a suspicion that maybe that was a little bit flailing on the part of some of the Gentile believers and particularly as he gives them warning that God is able to bring Jews back into the olive tree and he's cut off the unbelieving uh, branches and so take heed and don't be proud and be humbled. Um, God's able to bring back believing Jews and he's able to cut off unbelieving, proud, self, uh, self-glorying uh, Gentiles. So he gives those words of warning and then of course in 14 and 15 the concern is the problems of judging one another and uh, failing to receive one another because of matters of um, things you ordinarily would associate with Jewish distinctives, uh, diet and also day, days, uh, days that one uh, preferred above another and, and also diet uh, restrictions that uh, Jews probably in Greek cities like, uh, actually it's a Latin city, Rome, but uh, in, the, in the Roman Empire there would have been... Um, a reticence just to go down to the butcher shop and to pick up meats because you didn't know where it had been. It may have been well uh, offered meat offered to to idols in idol temple, and so Jews would say, "Well, let's just uh, go to a vegetable diet. Vegetables will sustain us." I mean, that's what Daniel did in um, in um, uh, the book of Daniel uh, when he wouldn't eat the king's uh, provision. Uh, So they probably were thinking we're exiles like Daniel here in Rome and we're going to operate like Daniel by only um, eating vegetables. So uh, that's probably what's happening. And so in the preponderance of these matters of Jew and Gentile problems, you would think um, um, there's some scenario through which we ought to be reading the book of Romans. And and sure enough, the book of Acts gives us a, a few hints. We have that uh, Emperor Claudius that uh, went and um, exiled the Jews from Rome. He uh, evicted them. And uh, it was only after Claudius' death in 54 AD that the Jews were permitted back under the reign of Nero. Nero had come to the throne at that point. And it's likely the beginning of Nero's reign sometime around 54 or 55 AD that Paul wrote the book of Romans. And so Jews had, had come back. And uh, they probably come back, came back in the midst of altered conditions because they were the ones who were at Jerusalem when Peter preached the Pentecostal sermon in chapter 2 of the book of Acts, probably went back to Rome, probably with the people that formed 
the church uh, from, uh, by witnessing to other Jews and also probably witnessing to God-fearers, Gentiles, who came to synagogue services. And that probably was the origin of the Roman church. Paul didn't fa- found it, and in spite of the Roman Catholic consistence that Peter was the founder of the church, there's no proof that that was the case. There's no proof that Peter even was at Rome at least at the time when Paul wrote this letter. And so um, it was founded by a group of Jews. And uh, having been evicted from Rome, probably then it was the God-fearers and other Gentiles who had come to faith in Christ that began to be the leaders of the house churches. And again, in chapter 16, this is a letter that's written to Roman Christians who were worshipping in house churches. Paul mentions some five house churches in chapter 16. And so this was a letter that came to Rome and was probably distributed to each of the house churches. And though, uh, I think one of them was in the house of Aquila and Priscilla, who had come back to Rome. Um, there are also Gentiles. There were leaders in house churches. How did Jews and Gentiles get along? How did they relate to one another? Well, it's one of the reasons the book of Romans was, Romans was written. It's not the only reason. Um, again, Paul desires to see uh, Rome have a central place in the westward expansion of the gospel. Again, it's the capital city. Um, it's the city that uh, was probably the wealthiest of cities and best able, uh, both because of its uh, importance as a city and its ability as a church, uh, to help to oversee, to finance uh, a westward expansion, uh, to look back to Antioch, which was the sending church that Paul sent, that sent Paul out at the beginning, was probably unrealistic. And so look to Rome as uh, one that would have a central place in that westward expansion to Spain was likely another reason he wrote this letter. The letter is like other letters of the ancient world and other letters that we see in the New Testament, very true to form. Uh, Paul doesn't, again, we've mentioned this before in other letters, he doesn't invent his own epistolary form. Uh, he uses the common one. And the common one began with the writer, uh, naming himself and then the readers and then there was usually something of a, a blessing or sometimes followed by a prayer and uh, all those things Paul does but what Paul does when he uses these introductory forms is he Christianizes it thoroughly and here is one this is the introductory uh, introduction to a letter that's the lengthiest it goes for some uh, seven verses uh, you don't have anything comparable. I think uh, the First Corinthians might be the second lengthiest, um, but this is definitely the lengthiest of um, Paul's introductory words. Possibly he lengthens it because he was not uh, the founding apostle. He didn't know these people. They didn't know him. They, he, they knew one another by reputation, but didn't know one another personally. And uh, so Paul has a whole lot more to say to them than he does in these other letters. Um, He addresses himself in terms of his own self-identity and his calling. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle set apart uh, for the gospel of God. And I I said last week, I wanted to get get a brisk run through this epistle. Let me just backtrack on that statement and say that there are times I think I could do an adequate summary of, of a bulk of material, but I also think there's times it's important to do a deep plunge. It's important to highlight certain things because, again, here's something unique in the Pauline letters. Here's an introduction that's unlike any others. It's, it's lengthier. It, it says much more about Paul. It says much more about uh, Jesus. 
And so I think it's important that we uh, don't uh, just run quickly over, over that material. Now, Paul calls himself a servant of Christ. I believe in other letters. I think in the Philippian letter, I could be wrong, but I think in, there are other letters that he uses that term servant. There's a couple of different words in the New Testament in the Greek that are translated servant. They're not the same words. So there's the word diakonos, which we get a deacon from, which means a table waiter, someone who serves a table. And that's the picture of somebody that does service, menial service sometimes, but necessary service. Deacons were to serve the tables of the widows in Acts chapter 6. And they're to serve the needs of the congregation as servants. Servants. Um, and sometimes ministers of the gospel are called servants. They serve uh, the word. They're servants of the word. Uh, this is not uh, uh, diakonos uh, here. This is doulos. And the Greek word doulos is a word that is often as a, used as a slave. Someone who's a slave. Um, Paul sees himself as a slave of Christ Jesus. Later on in the letter, he's going to speak about slavery as something that is common to mankind. Um, they'll quote, often quote Bob Dylan, but we'll do it here. you got to serve somebody. Of course, Jesus made that statement. Uh, you can't serve two masters. You'll, you'll cleave to the one. You'll despise the other. You can't serve God and mammon. Uh, so you, you serve somebody. And uh, Paul says that um, uh, we, we by nature serve our, we're servants of sin. You who were the servants of sin... You become obedient from the heart to the form of teaching to which you were delivered and having become freed from, from sin, free from sin servitude, free from being slaves of sin, where sin made its demands and you willingly obeyed. Now you become obedient from the heart to the form of doctrine to which you were delivered and you become slaves of righteousness. Now righteousness makes its demands and its righteousness to whom you obey. And, and this matter of slavery in this context, I think, is important because what do slaves do? Slaves obey their masters, right? That's what slaves do. Masters speak, slaves obey. And Paul's concern is to set forth his gospel, which he says, at verse 5, through whom we've received grace and apostleship to bring about what? The obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are the called who belong to Jesus Christ. He's writing to them. You belong to Jesus Christ. You are the slaves of Jesus Christ. And our apostleship has as its end your obedience, that you would obey your rightful and lawful master who bought you with a price and made you his own. And if that's Paul's end in the, in the writing of the letter, the obedience of, of their faith, he has to make some assertion, I'm not just calling upon you to do something I don't do. I'm a slave. I serve Christ. He is my master. I live at his beck and call. And I seek to faithfully um, uh, obey him. So uh, my work as one seeking to bring about your obedience is from the posture of one who himself obeys. One who himself renders the obedience of faith unto my Lord and Master, uh, Jesus Christ. So I'm a slave of Christ Jesus. He calls himself called to be an apostle, a called apostle. And it's questionable what this calling is. I mean, he mentions in the Galatian letter, like Jeremiah, he was called from before his mother, before, uh, before his mother, he was in his mother's womb. 
and he was called by uh, God's grace. Uh, there's a certain sense in which uh, there was this eternal purpose and plan uh, for Paul to be this very servant of Christ. Um, but yet this matter of being called to be an apostle, it could have been something, the, the thing that happened on the road to Damascus when Jesus appeared to him and uh, he told Ananias, I must show him how many things he must suffer for my sake. And he told them that he would be uh, the one who would bring, preach his gospel uh, for the conversion of, of the nations. It could have been the Damascus Road experience that called him to be an apostle. But you remember, after that, there wasn't a whole lot of success that happened. He went into the um, synagogue at, uh, at uh, Damascus, and we don't read of revival. We don't read of massive conversions. We read about Paul having to flee the city, being lowered in a basket. And, you know, Again, we, we saw in the Corinthian letter that the whole vantage point of assaulting a city, if you were coming to do, to do gospel work in a city, you came to Damascus to win the city for Jesus, you, 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 were, you were to scale the wall and you were to have victory over the wall. You would be the first one over the wall, leading the massive army uh, over the wall uh, to secure the city or to gain the city. That didn't happen. Paul's ministry to Damascus, it was the other direction. He comes over the wall in a basket, fleeing uh, because of the decree of King Aretas that told him, you know, be gone. He had to go. He had to leave. And he had to leave in Jerusalem in, in much the same way. Um, his, his presence caused trouble, and uh, the disciples led him away and sent him back to uh, his hometown in Tarsus and Cilicia. Um, I rather think being set apart for the gospel of God in this particular letter in which he's speaking about uh, the obedience of the nations was likely the call that he received through the church at Antioch when they set him apart to be um, to be uh, part of that missionary team that, that went out uh, to, uh, um, to the nations. Remember in chapter 13, he had all those people that were praying and fasting, and the Holy Spirit said, set apart Paul and Barnabas for the work that I've called them to do. And it's likely through the church, that call to this apostolic ministry, although the others are part of the whole scenario of Paul's call. But it was that point that he was certainly set apart for the gospel of God through the work of the church. No sooner does Paul speak of the gospel of God than it triggers in his mind uh, much that could be said and, and should be said and that he does say to the church at Rome. Uh, this gospel is not just something that has come into the world lately. It's a gospel that has ancient origins. It was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And um, one of the things that we should understand about the use of prophets in uh, the Bible, when it speaks of Old Testament prophets, when we think of prophets, what is it that we think of? Okay, we think of the books that begin with Isaiah and go to Malachi, right? And those are the prophets. Well, in the Hebrew understanding of the Bible, the way the books are put together, those are called uh, the latter prophets. So what we call prophets are, in the Hebrew Bible, the latter prophets. But there are former prophets. And the former prophets begin with Joshua. It begins with the book of Joshua. 
And it goes into Judges, it goes into First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, or the four books of the Kings that would be considered again in more of a Hebrew reckoning. Um, but then it would not include Ruth. Ruth is in the writings, um, but it would include um, no, it wouldn't include uh, Chronicles either. Um, yeah, basically that's what you have: Ju- Joshua, Judges, and uh, the Kings. I don't, can't think of anything else that's in the, the former prophets. But all those books are the former prophets. And the rest of the books are the law, which are the five books of Moses. And then the other books, which are con- combined in the writings. Uh, so these books here are called former prophets. And, and generally, what you have in, in the, the Jewish reckoning, um, you have references to the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets. You see that particularly in the Gospels. I've not come to destroy the law and the prophets I've come to fulfill. And law and prophets in that sense really means all the books of the Bible. First five books of Moses and the rest of the scriptures are really all prophetic. But of course in um, Luke 24 you have uh, the law uh, which are the five books of Moses and then you have the prophets which are the former and latter prophets and the writings. And it's with the writings that you have uh, Ruth, you have Esther, you have Lamentations, you have... um, Job, and of course, what we call the uh, poetic books, uh, Job through Song of Solomon, uh, including the Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, those are all found in the writings. So um, when Paul speaks of the prophets in the Holy Scriptures, he's he's thinking more than just what we consider the writing prophets. He's probably thinking uh, the Old Testament. It it would be comparable to uh, God spoke, uh, promised the gospel beforehand. through the entirety of Scripture, not just through the writing prophets. I think he has in view the the entirety of Scripture. Um, Think of the Galatian letter when he said that God preached the gospel beforehand to what? Abraham. Abraham. Where's where's Abraham found? It's not found in the prophets. It's found in Genesis. It's found in the law. And and yet he can make the statement that God promised beforehand uh, through his prophets. And of course Abraham was a prophet and Abraham uh, was part of the prophetic writings. So the prophetic writings in this sense would include the entirety of the Holy Scriptures. And so what God promised concerning uh, uh, beforehand through the Scriptures is that which concerns his son. That which concerns his son. Now, the son is viewed in two ways in this passage. He's viewed, first of all, Paul says, according to the flesh. You see that in verse 3. Concerning his son, who was descended from David, according to the flesh. And then was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit. According to the spirit. According to the flesh. According to the spirit. And those words, according to the flesh, according to the spirit... Uh, uh, the first time that's found in this letter, but it's repeated over and over and over again. Language like according to the flesh, according to the spirit. Um, and we have to understand, understand what those words mean. Look at uh, chapter 4 and verse 1. This is not a complete list. This is just going off the top of my head. Uh, when, what shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? According to the flesh. What, what does it mean, according to the flesh? And when we get to chapter 4, you'll see there's two ways of understanding it. Uh, what should we say about Abraham? Uh, our, he's either our forefather, according to the flesh, or it could be, what shall we say 
about Abraham according to the flesh. Uh, uh, in other words, uh, it's either our forefather according to the flesh or Abraham, what can be said of him according to the flesh? And there's a diff- distinction, there's a difference of meaning there. So we need to know what that phrase according to the flesh means. And then, of course, in chapter 8, you have in 8 and verse um, 5, it says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, and those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So according to the flesh, according to the Spirit, are repeated again and again. You have it in Romans 9, according to the flesh. Um, what does it mean? What is this contrast that Paul is, is dealing with? Uh, according to the flesh, according to the Spirit. Well, well, there are some who would say, well, because he's talking according to the flesh, that Jesus descended from David, that's talking about his human origin, and according to the Spirit speaks of his divine origin. Uh, that's a nice, neat, simple way to make a distinction. But I'm not sure he's exactly what Paul is, um, is, is, is concerned with. Um, according to the flesh, um, again, is, is speaking of the natural order of things. And the natural order of things, of course, is that which is governed by God. It's that which is regulated by the teaching of, 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 of the scriptures. So it shouldn't always be considered uh, an inconsiderable thing. What we are according to the flesh is, uh, you know, again, what we are by our birth and what we are really without the Holy Spirit. What we are according to the Spirit is that great work of transformation that God has done. But yet uh, there is still that remainder of the flesh, that reality of the flesh that still adheres to us. So Paul could say that, uh, um, that he considers himself that in, that in his flesh there dwells no good thing. Flesh still exists. I mean, we're still fleshly beings, and the flesh can't just be diminished or denied or ruled out of court and just say, well, deny, well deny. we have the spirit, so who cares about the flesh? Well, you've got to care about the flesh. You've got to care about our earthly existence. And I think the very first time it's used will tell us we can't ignore this reality of the flesh. Because the reality of the flesh with respect to Jesus really points out his identity. It points out the promises of God with respect to his son, promises that come ultimately through the Davidic covenant, through the promise that was given to David, that there will always be a king that would reign upon the throne. That points to Jesus' identity as the Davidic king, not just that he's human. Not just, well, we all have our fleshly ancestry, and Jesus had a fleshly ancestry. This again, remember, the fleshly ancestry of Jesus goes much further. It goes to Abraham. It goes to the promise given to Abraham. And that too is not inconsiderable, because Paul's going to talk about that in chapter 9. That is the promise of Abraham, it's the promise of, 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 of the seed, the seed of Abraham, through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So Jesus' identity in accordance with the flesh, again, has to do with divine promises. He was, accord, he was son of David, according to the flesh. You know, it's an interesting thing, the way the Gospels view Jesus in just this very light. Um, you look at the differences that exist between Mark, Matthew, Mark and Matthew in particular, Luke as well. Uh, John hardly mentions Jesus as the son of David. In fact, the only time it's mentioned is that uh, the Pharisees are debating, what do we make of this guy? Is he the Messiah? And they said things like, well, Messiah was uh, supposed to be born in uh, Bethlehem. City of David. City of David. And that's the only place that David's mentioned, is in uh, Messiah's uh, lineage, going back to David and his birth being in the city of David, uh, the city of Bethlehem. 
And of course, they were ignorant of Jesus' place of birth. They thought he was a Galilean and not someone from Bethlehem. Um, in, in Luke's gospel, uh, Jesus is called the, the son of David. And uh, he's there, there in chapter 2, to us this day in the city of David. Um, there's this, uh, he's born a savior, uh, Christ the Lord. And so city of David comes into importance for the very fact of where Joseph and Mary come to give birth to Jesus in Luke's gospel. But also when the angel came to, came to Mary in chapter 1, uh, he says he will, he will reign upon the throne of David. This one who's being born will be the Messiah. He'll, be, have, have, he'll have the messianic throne. He's born to reign. He's born to ascend the throne of his father, David. And that's really getting more to the point of being descended from David, is that he bears the insignia of Davidic ancestry uh, that, that he might qualify in terms of his messianic identity. Um, you look at the book of Matthew. Matthew's the most pivotal of these Gospels in terms of uh, Jesus' Davidic origin. Um, it's something interesting. that I th- I've told you this before. I think Mike remembers this from Christmas a couple of years ago. The ghost of Christmas past is coming back uh, to grace this morning because we did this in a Christmas message some years ago where uh, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the book of the origin of Jesus Christ, we're doing Genesis all over again here in Matthew. Uh, and it's a Genesis not of creation itself but the new creation. Uh, what's the genesis of the new creation? Well, Matthew 1 and verse 1 is that Jesus Christ is son of David, son of Abraham. And it's an interesting thing because we would think that the order of, of time is that Jesus first is son of Abraham. First the promise came to Abraham of a seed through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And David came later. The Davidic covenant comes later. But Matthew says, no, son of David comes first. Because he's going to give his presentation of Jesus, not so much as the seed of Abraham, through whom all the nations will be blessed, though that's not ignored. But his main concern is that Jesus is the Davidic king. He is the Davidic king. And so he gives his genealogy. And this genealogy sometimes is confusing, because there's gaps in it. And then you come up with the fact that there's four teens. Three sets of fourteen. Fourteen Generations from Abraham to who? To David. Fourteen generations of what? Carrying the weight of Babylon? Well, it's totally carrying away of Babylon, but what happened between David and the carrying away of Babylon? In terms of these people that are mentioned. They were the Davidic kings. You had David and Solomon that were kings of the united nation of Israel and Judah, but then the the kings of Judah, after Rehoboam and the division of the kingdom. They're all Judean Judean kings. They're all the kings of Judah. They came up until um, up until um, he's called Jeconiah, but his name was changed to Zedekiah. If Zedekiah is the final king that was taken into captivity in Babylon, what happened after that? What happened after the deportation of Babylon? No kings. No kings of David's line. I mean, there were people that came back kind of as kingly figures. There were the Hasmonean kings that came in the, in the time of uh, Judas Maccabees and his descendants. But they were not Davidic kings. They were not sons of David. I think they were of the priestly line. But anyway, 
There's no Davidic king. There's no king upon the throne. God said to David, there will always be a king upon the throne. Where's this eternal king? We're looking for him. And the lead up of Matthew is it's Jesus, is the next Davidic king. And, and the tip off of that all is the fact that 14 generations in um, the way in which Hebrew letters uh, are also used as numbers. Uh, you have um, the name David. It looks like a DVD, you know, but it's not. If you put it in Hebrew, it's something like that. It's the Hebrew letter Daleth. I do it really bad. Daleth, Vav, and then Daleth. And if you go into the Hebrew alphabet and learn it, Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Daleth. That's the fourth letter of the alphabet. Vav. Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Daleth, Hev, Vav. That's the sixth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And then we're back to Daleth. That's four. You do the addition. <laughs> six, four, four, six, four plus six plus four is fourteen. So, fools fourteen generations spell the name David. Fourteen generations from Abraham to David's appearance. Fourteen generations of Davidic kings. Fourteen generations of no Davidic kings until the next Davidic king. And the very fact that um, Matthew fashions that he skips generations. He makes them 14. There's some people that he skips, that the Old Testament tells us about, that are not included. Why does he do it that way? Because this is to point us to the fact, this is David's genealogy. This is the genealogy with respect to David. Because he can talk to us about Jesus Christ, first of all, son of David, the next Davidic king. And he sets this up in a way that we see that the whole history of the Old Testament is waiting for the Davidic king. Read the book of Judges. What happens in the book of Judges? Everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. Why? Because there was no king in Israel. And the whole book of Judges is looking forward to the birth of David. That's really where it ends. And then the book of Ruth comes in to show us it's the son, um, it's, o, it's uh, Boaz's son Obed who gives birth to Jesse, who gives birth to David. It's all anticipating the king. It's anticipating David. That's how the Old Testament books are structured. And the New Testament books is the fulfillment of that expectation. We're waiting for the Davidic king. And the Davidic king comes in the person of, of Jesus. So that once you're done with the genealogy, you look... Um, at verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together. Um, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And um, her husband Joseph, being a just man, willing, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, not just Joseph, but Joseph's son of David. Joseph's son of David. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived of her is from the Holy Spirit. And when you get into chapter 2, what do you have there? Well, you have the wise men from the east, and they're coming to Jerusalem. And what, are their, what is their question? Where is he who was born king of the Jews? We're looking for the king. We're looking for the king. And uh, there's a lot of more you can say from Matthew. But my point is that central to the understanding of the Bible with respect to Jesus is he's the promised Davidic king. He's the son of David, according to his identity, in terms of human calculation, in terms of the promises of God given to David. It's a human calculation. God gave promises. It's from this man, David, his seed, the ruler will come. 
And then when God speaks to the prophets about all these false teachers in Israel, these false leaders, these false shepherds, again, that whole picture of the shepherd is the shepherd king. David was the shepherd king to lead the people. And all these shepherds were failing in their responsibility. And God says about the evil shepherds, he's going to, He's good. They're, they're getting cast out. They can no longer be shepherds. They've not visited my people. They've, 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 they've looked to um, fleece the sheep. They've looked to use the sheep for their own ambitions and their own ends. And God says, I'm going to raise up faithful shepherds. And he says in one point, I myself will shepherd them. And then he says, I will send them David. Jeremiah 23 and uh, Ezekiel 37, I think both actually speak of David. David's coming? How's David coming back? Well, it's in his son. The son of David. The son of David's coming. And so that consciousness comes through Paul's um, own description of Jesus. He's the son of David. That's a vitally important significance in terms of his identity. According to even what we can calculate, humanly speaking, it had to be a son of David. And Jesus qualifies as son of David. But there's more to him. There's more to him than human calculation. There's more to him than what can be understood just from, um, well, we, we look at the genealogy charts and we see he qualifies because he is a son of David. God's intervened in the history of this man, Jesus, to do something totally unprecedented and unique. Which of the prophets were raised from the dead? Which of the, uh, of none? Of, of it says he's declared to be. It's not just an according to the flesh relationship. There's according to the spirit relationship. There's an according to the spirit of holiness. He's marked out. He's declared to be. He's revealed to be. This is disclosing to us the true nature of this man, Jesus. That by the resurrection from the dead, the spirit of holiness, and that's just the Holy Spirit, Jesus was raised by the power of the, of the triune God. The Spirit of God raised him from the dead. Jesus says, destroy this temple in three days. I will raise myself from the dead. And the Spirit of his Father raised him from the dead. All three are predicated in Scripture. The resurrection is Christ raising himself. The Spirit raises him. The Father raises him. The triune God raises him. And this is appointed, it's declared, it's marked out. There's no question about it. There's no way to, de- de- to, uh, to deny it. God has spoken. <laughs> declared him to be son of God with power. According to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. He's the divine son. And that's made revealed, that's, to, that's revealed by his resurrection. That he is the divine Son. Now he was always the divine son. He was eternally the divine son. The church has used language to try to express that eternal relationship of the Father and the Son in terms of what it spoke what the church has spoken of as his eternal begetting. You know, the Bible speaks of the only begotten Son, and that's language that really comes from It comes from Abraham's relationship to Isaac in Mount Moriah. When God came to him and said, take your son, your only son, your only son. It's the unique son. It's the one of a kind son. It's a son like none other. You think of Abraham 
and Isaac and Abraham had other sons. He had, uh, he had Ishmael through Hagar, right? And later on we read about other sons through Keturah. Uh, but there was only one only begotten son. There was only one unique son. There was only one only son in that sense. And that was Isaac. He was the son of the promise. He was the son of miraculous birth. Isaac did not get born because of natural factors. God intervened and quickened the dead womb of Sarah and the dead body of Abraham so a child was conceived. God did something miraculous in an only son. Jesus is predicated as the only son, but not just because in time he came through a virgin birth, but he's a unique son to the Father eternally. He's called the son of his love in Colossians. There's that uniqueness of relationship that really preceded incarnation, but it's revealed in incarnation. What's revealed about God in himself comes to be revealed in history as the son of God is born. And you know what the church has done is basically argued from the reality of that relationship the son has to the father in time to say there was an eternal existence, which you know John 1 1 tells us that Colossians 1 15, 14, 14 and 15 tells us that Hebrews 1 tells us there's a pre-existence of Jesus in relationship to his father. What what happens to him in time simply mirrors that eternal relationship. There is a unique, ever-existing relationship between the Father and Son. So when we baptize, what do we say? We say we baptize in the name of the incarnate Son, but the unincarnate Father. Where do we even get the name Father? Why is he called the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit? Who is he the Father of? Well, he's the Father of Jesus eternally. He's the Father of the Son in terms of the eternal relation of the Trinity. So it goes back to eternity, but it's manifest in time. And it's manifest in time, not only in incarnation, but it's manifest in resurrection. In Christ's resurrection, his sonship is made apparent, it's revealed. Um, and that really, that goes again back to the Psalms. I know this can get very complex, this can get very difficult. But there's certain events in Jesus' history that that eternal sonship is expressed, it's revealed, it's made known. You say, yes, we see who he is. He's the eternal son of God because he was begotten in that unique way. In, in that Only an only begotten son like Isaac was. Unique, different, God-given, uh, miraculous. Uh, so we see a, a mirror of an eternal beginning, of an eternal relationship that only uh, God can do through what he does in sending his son. He sends his son into the world and it comes in this totally unexpected, totally un- unique way. And, and so you say, why a virgin birth? Well, because of who he is. <laughs> because of who he is. This is something different and unique. God's declaring this to us. That you don't, you don't have a virgin birth every ever. <laughs> it comes once in history. And it comes once in history because the son comes once in history. But then also in resurrection, there is the sonship of Jesus, again, made apparent. And part of that, again, is the fact that David was the head of a dynasty of kings. When he died, Solomon reigned in his stead. When Solomon died, Rehoboam reigned in his stead. When Rehoboam died, the next Davidic king comes to the throne. And so there's a sense in which the whole picture of Jesus as a Davidic king uh, you might think it's all come to an end. And, you know, we had hoped it was he who would redeem Israel, is what the travelers on the road to Emmaus said. Remember that? We had hoped it was he that would re- redeem Israel. 
But why did they stop hoping? I mean, apparently they stopped hoping. Why did they stop hoping? Who could tell me why? Why? Why, if you were them, would you have stopped hoping? He was dead. He was dead. The one in whom they hoped had died. He'd been crucified. He's not alive any longer. He can't possibly fulfill these promises. Except God did something very, very unusual. One of a kind. At least in terms of mid-history. Because he raised his son from the dead. He raised his son from the dead. The king is risen. And the king is risen to what? To be enthroned at the right hand of the majesty on high. To take the throne of his father David. And Psalm 2 expresses this. Turn to Psalm 2. See, the Bible isn't taking Old Testament passages and misapplying them. They say, oh, this refers to David. It doesn't refer to Jesus at all. And this is what some people say. But really, to understand how these prophecies or these promises or these Messianic Psalms get fulfilled, Jesus is the one who has to complete the picture. Because you really don't have a Davidic king otherwise. At least not in terms of the promise that God gave to David. You have an end of the Davidic dynasty, and it's never renewed again. There's no eternal existence of a Davidic dynasty, apart from the fact God intervened in human history to send his son by way of a virgin birth and raised him from the dead. It's these divine acts that bring about uh, the raising up of the fallen house of David. It doesn't rise again without God's work. Here you have the picture of nations raging, peoples plotting in vain, kings of the earth setting themselves, rulers taking counsel together against Yahweh, I'm sorry, against the Lord, that's the word Adonai, the name for God, Adonai. I'm sorry, that is, that is Yahweh, that is Yahweh. I guess my eyes are healed, but not completely. <laughs> against Yahweh and against his anointed. There's an anointed of Yahweh. Who's the anointed of Yahweh? Well, well, well it's David, but there's somebody greater than David. Again, Jesus made the same comment in the Gospels with respect to Psalm 110. Uh, is, is, is the Messiah... Who is the Messiah? Well, David's son. Well, why does he call him Lord? Well, again, you have the same issues going on here. In this Psalm, who is this anointed one? Well, the nations are rebelling. Let us burst their bonds apart, cast away their cords from us. And just to take note, that's quoted in Psalm 4. I'm sorry, Acts chapter 4. It's quoted in Acts chapter 4 in a prayer. They quote Psalm 2. In fact, they even mentioned, as the Lord said in Psalm 2, as you have said in Psalm 2. They even say it's Psalm 2. And then they say that in this city, Herod and Pontius Pilate and all the Jews gather together to conspire against the anointed of God and put him to death by the hands of wicked men. They slew him. They crucified him. They put him to death. They see the fulfillment of Psalm 2 in the conspiring of the nations in the person of the leaders of the Romans and the leaders of the Jews to plot Jesus' death. He cannot ascend the throne. He must be put to death. There cannot be a revival of the Davidic kingdom on Jesus' terms. Only on our terms will we allow that to happen. That's what basically they were saying. And then what is God's reaction? He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord will hold them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath, terrifying them in his fury, saying, As for me, this is God speaking now, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I'm the one in charge of who it is that reigns, not you. You're not an ultimate determiner of who the king of the nations will be. 
who will be the one I will set at my right hand. And of course, Zion, my holy hill, that's where the temple was. And of course, Jesus comes identifying himself with the temple, saying, destroy this temple. In three days, I will raise it up. Well, how does God set his king upon his holy hill? By raising up the temple. Jesus' resurrection. And we'll tell of the decree. Yahweh has said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. What day is that? Well, again, we might think of the language of begetting, the eternal begetting, but no, this is something that happens in time. This is something that happens in time. And this is something that happens when the, when the rulers take counsel together, seek to destroy God's anointed. And for a time, it seems as though they've succeeded. And yet God says, as for me, I'm the determiner of who the king of, of glory is. Today I begotten you is now predicated in the New Testament of the resurrection of Christ. Look, if you will, at uh, Acts chapter 13. Psalm 2 is quoted here expressly in terms of the resurrection of Christ. Paul says at the synagogue of Antioch and Pisidia in Acts 13, verse 30, But God raised him from the dead. For many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news, that what God promised to the fathers, he's fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. By raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm. I'm sorry, it's probably not Acts 4 that quotes the second psalm. I'm probably thinking of this, what Paul says. It's the second psalm. Just look it up. Look it up in your Bibles. You know where Psalm 2 is. You know where the book of Psalms is. Go to the second one. Second one, you're going to find it. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. The today of God, divine begetting of the son is his being raised to be seated at the throne of the, on the throne of David. David's son will reign. David's son will be raised. Now David's son is also God's son. He also has not just a relationship to God in time in terms of incarnation, but an eternal relationship that goes back. It's all son. It's all son. And it's all divine fulfillment of divine promise. And so though some of this does get confusing, uh, just think of the reality that the stuff that happens in time are the stuff that God's promised in Old Testament, and it's the stuff that reflects eternal relationships as well. So a bunch of stuff goes on in our Bibles that we really need to understand. So who have I confused this morning that needs some further word of clarification? Anything that you are confused about, or anything I can clarify that more clearly, make make a little more, little more clearly? Yes? Yeah, I have a question. Sure. In terms of Psalm 2. In terms of Psalm 2. In terms of Psalm 2. But the, the language of only begotten is really going back to Genesis uh, 20 uh, with the uh, Mount Moriah. That's where the language, it's that unique, really, that unique son. And, and so it, it would have to be not, in terms of Isaac, it's not just that Isaac was raised from the dead, although Hebrews tells us that was Abraham's hope and promise. But Isaac was never really killed. But Isaac is still the unique son. Before they ever get to Moriah, take your son, your only son, your only begotten son. And what makes Isaac the unique son was not so much a resurrection, but the manner of his birth. 
the manner that God quickened the dead womb of Sarah. And you know, so you have a son born that was miraculous, that was totally unexpected, except for divine promise, that what God promised, he was able also to perform. As Paul's going to want to say in Romans. Um, so what I'm saying is that though the language of only begotten in Psalm 2, the New Testament tells us was fulfilled in the resurrection, we don't limit the language of only begotten to resurrection. He doesn't, I mean, he's, he's declared to be son of God. He's revealed to be son of God. The manifestation of his divine sonship is seen in resurrection, but it's also seen in incarnation. And it's not only seen in resurrection and incarnation, it's also seen in eternal relations. Because why do things happen in time the way that they do? Why does the Son come and not the Father or the Spirit? Why is the Son incarnated? Well, because there's something in divine relations that brought this about in the way that it happens. So it goes back to eternity in the relationship of the Father, Son, and Spirit. So the church has spoken of the uniqueness of Jesus, not only in resurrection and incarnation, but also in eternal relations. And the language of begetting is that which speaks of the uniqueness of that relationship in all three of those relations. So sonship goes back to eternity, but it's revealed in time, in, in birth. It's revealed in birth out of the dead. It's revealed in terms of an eternal begetting in an eternal relationship that the Father sustains to the Son. I know, mind-blowing. Mind-blowing stuff. But it's, all, it's really all there in Scripture. I mean, the church didn't piece together its doctrine of the Trinity out of thin air. It got it from the Word of God. And it got it from very sober and sane reasoning from the Word of God. Just finding what's here. Well, so we have both of those expressions. And I didn't get far this morning, did I? But I thought it was, might be good to have explained just what that distinction between flesh and spirit is. According to the flesh, he's the... He's the, 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 the um, Descended from David, he's the Davidic king, according to human reckoning, in terms of the promises of God, in terms of his genealogy, his, his identity as Davidic king is there, but then the further identity of his divine sonship is revealed in resurrection power by the Spirit, according to the Spirit, in his resurrection from the dead. And who is he? Jesus Christos Kyrios. Jesus Christ our Lord, the one who reigns at the right hand of the majesty on high. And we'll get to look, God willing, next Lord's Day at Paul's own work that he's been given to do and look on to how Paul begins to introduce himself and further um, his concerns in this Roman letter. Our time's gone. Hope that was helpful, but uh, if you have questions, feel free to raise them. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for the word of your grace that you have blessed us with in Scripture. We're thankful for the truths that Scripture declares and your own acts in history make apparent and revealed that, Lord, you are the one who sent your Son by way of the virgin's womb. You are the one who raised him from the dead in power and in majesty. And you are the one who has enthroned him at your own right hand. And so we come this morning to worship and to adore the great God of our salvation, the great God who calls us to bow, every knee to bow and every tongue to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
We ask you to look upon us with your favor and your mercy this morning. You would continue to be in our midst. You'd continue to encourage our hearts as we fellowship with one another, as we greet one another, as we enter into the morning hour of worship. Look upon Again, hear us, our Father, answer our prayers and grant us the desires of our heart as we come to you in Jesus' name. Amen.